Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 141 of Control the Controllables. A little fun fact about today's guest. She has never lost a Fed Cup match. Most of the tournaments I I was at, there wasn't really any other female coaches that was just the norm I was aware that I had to work hard maybe to gain respect and then I had to stay there to keep it and this week's episode is Lucy Arl former British number one singles player ranked as high as 161 in the world WTA Lucy's then gone on to have a life in coaching, working with the likes of Laura Robson and a lot of the top British girls and boys over the last few years. She also is a coach to coaches and she's also completed many Ironman competitions. She's an incredible person. She's got a great story and I'm sure you guys are going to thoroughly enjoy listening to Lucy Arl. So, Lucy, all a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to this, hopefully. And the second, your second attempt at Control the Controllables, some people will be listening going, I'm sure I've heard that voice before on the podcast, in and amongst another 10, 11, 12 voices that were fighting for the floor. So the floor is all yours tonight. Much, much easier for you. I know, solo attempt. Yeah, second time on, so looking forward to it. Hopefully it'll go okay. And last time, obviously, we're on with all the all the Brits talking about grass court season and the, the challenges of grass court season being a British player, and I'm sure we'll have some little stories on that as well. But there's a lot of different lenses that you see tennis through now, and you, you've had a very successful playing career, coaching career, mentor coach to coaches now and and also also a commentator so where did all of this tennis thing start that's taken you to so many countries around the world I know it's been quite a journey and it's still going and I've loved loved every minute of it I've been really lucky to have so many different opportunities um it started back I guess my parents took my brother and my sister along to sort of a local area tennis Day, I suppose my brother got picked out my sister didn't she's no hand eye coordination at all and then a few years later me and my other brother got picked out so there was three of us that sort of took the tennis journey and it all started from there really I was probably about four or five and used to play every week um, then I wasn't particularly good actually as a as a junior it took me a while to come through I did peak with short tennis and won the under nine short tennis national championship somehow. At Telford? 
it was at Telf, but uh, mm. Coventry, Coventry, I think oh, the I final was. So I beat Laura Dean in the final and Ross Nyland beat a certain Tim Henman. So Is that right? Tim went on and having lost in that final, he went on and did pretty well. So the four of us then went to Wimbledon and we actually were able to play at Wimbledon on a short tennis court. Back then it you played, I don't know, did did you play? We had a sponge ball and a really heavy plastic. I, I did. Racket. Well, I played and, and actually the, the story about my age, I never won it. I probably won a match and played consolation. That was kind of my level at, at that time. But there was the guy who won it at my age group was, was a boy called James Foster from Essex. And a couple of things with James was one, he was all over the newspapers the next day because he was a full on racket thrower at that age, like crazy, like racket thrower. And he was, you know, everyone watched his matches. There was a big, big article on him in the Daily Telegraph, the next John McEnroe, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And then, well, James Foster then went on. He disappeared from the tennis world, probably 13 or 14. And about five or six years later, I saw him appear on the TV because he was the English wicketkeeper. Uh, in cricket, yeah, and he and and again, anyone that follows cricket will know James Foster. He was he was captain of Essex cricket team for I think 10, 12 years. You know, had a lot of caps for England as as, as a wicketkeeper. So yourself and Tim have stuck to tennis, but James Foster took the took the cricket journey after after that mini tennis victory. So I know all about the short tennis short tennis game. Did he launch his bat when he was playing, or did well, he settle down? <laughs> I, I used to watch and I think he, he actually, he, he found a way. So any parents out there that have got head cases from a, at a young age, there is hope that they can settle down a little bit as they get older. And what I get, I, I know people listening are going, well, what was Tim Hedman like at that age? Because people tell us that Tim wasn't very good up until a certain age, but if already he's, he's winning the nationals at under nine, he obviously had had some decent skills. We lost in the final to Ross Nyland. Right, okay. Ross still plays. He's a member at Wimbledon, so I've actually played a bit of mix with him. I mean, Tim was so talented, wasn't he? And just into the game. And I mean, it took him a bit of time to come through. I know, sort of. I guess when people say someone's not very good, it's it's relative, isn't it? I mean, he yeah. certainly had the skills. So it's yeah. So I I did well there, and then really my tennis journey. From then till about 16 was just county regional. I didn't actually win any match at nationals till first year 16s at Bournemouth on the clay there. So I lost every match. I might have won a match at the last hope, which is when you've lost in the consolation. I don't know if you had that. We were at Eastbourne, so it went consolation, then it went last hope. Amazing that they called it that. So it took me a while to come through. It was probably round about 15 that I decided that I wanted to play. And then it was trying to find somewhere where I could go. I contacted John Hicks and he'd said, no, I tried to um, get into one of the junior colleges in the States. And then I made the quarters at at nationals um, at Bournemouth. And then John accepted me, let me in. And then I went to um, Wrexham for a couple of years and the first year I really improved I was obviously playing quite a bit more tennis than than I was so 16 onwards I then made quite sort of big moves as a player and 
yeah, I played for 13 years as, as a pro and managed to play all the slams, Wimbledon main draw, played all the qualities of the other slams, played Fed Cup, now obviously Billie Jean King Cup. And yeah, I loved it. I mean, there were ups and downs, but I certainly enjoyed the, the different challenges and I guess, you know, just trying to learn how to be a pro on tour and and then all those skills have, have then helped me with the rest of my different careers. I guess that's where you're lucky as an athlete. You finish young, I think it was 28 when I stopped playing and and then I finished at, at Wimbledon that year in 2003. I'd lost to Sugiyama having had points to be four and up in the third and then a few days later stopped playing. Had a meeting with Dave Felgate, who was head of the LTA and said that I wanted to maybe get into coaching, do a bit of media and, and do an Ironman. So they were my three goals. And then from then on in, I've been lucky enough to, to do many things. So it's just been tennis really for the whole mm. of my life. Well, we're going to find out in a bit. I'm going to, I'm going to leave that hanging for the listeners to find out if you achieved all of those goals. And I'm going to take you back a little bit. There's a few things. And my, my first thing I want to say, Lucy, and I think this is a really important context you were one of the best players in the country, age nine. You then took seven years to get back to the point where you could compete anywhere near that level again on that journey. And then a few years later, you ended up being the British number one women's tennis player and achieved many, many things as a player. And then obviously that's before we even talking about life after playing tennis. And I just think right there, this is why... I do these podcasts because people need to understand that there's a lot of ways to skim this cat and there's many different ways that you can go on this journey. Firstly, don't get carried away if you're already doing well at nine because it can go wrong quite fast. And secondly, don't get carried away if it's not going right at age 14, 15 quite because you've got plenty of time to turn it around. So it's a lovely story to, to hear one of the big common things I'm getting on the podcast, Lucy, is, is family members and kind of almost being thrown into the sport because either a mom, a dad, a brother or sister are doing it and, and it makes a difference to naturally your kind of initial involvement in the sport. I, I know your brother, Dan, you know, pretty well um i i like like his his videos on social media that he did through through lockdown so a little shout out to dan for keeping us entertained during that time um how influential was your family in in that tennis journey not just on getting you started but also something that's kept the passion burning for so many years that was huge i um, as i say my other brother ben he played till about 14 his claim to fame is I'm not sure if it's true. He reckons he, he beat Henman, whether he played him or... But, I mean, he played nationals and then, I mean, he had a, a bit of a, a temper as well. So he stopped uh, when he was younger. And then my other brother, he played, he did play pro for a while. Um, so passionate about the game. And he was definitely more talented than me. I, I probably was the one that maybe worked harder. So was able to play a little, little bit longer, but certainly... You know, that connection throughout out the family with the, the passion for the sport. My, my parents 
didn't actually play. My dad played cricket. I think my mum played a bit of squash. So tennis wasn't really in the family, but what there was was the support. And from my perspective, I was the youngest um, of four. I think probably I got away with more, but it was definitely, look, if this is what you want to want to do, then we'll support it. I think, you know, obviously it was important to to work hard, but they were, they understood that it was, you know, something that I wanted to do and I was passionate about. And that definitely opened the door to, to me having the journey that I did. And then throughout my career, I was really lucky that, you know, there wasn't certainly any pressure at all from them. It was just support. And, you know, we do, do have stories where, you know, parents can put pressure on their kids. That certainly wasn't the case from my perspective. So I view myself as, as being really lucky to have, to have had that support. And similarly, you know, my brother who loves tennis still plays now. He, you know, definitely was fully supportive and it's massive. I, th I think it's vital you, you, you've got that network around you. And as I say, it, it made a big difference for me. Some And some good hitting partners as well. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't know how much I hit with him. Oh, I think, really? I think, I think a bit. I was obviously a bit younger. Um, we did have the same coach to start with. I did a good coach when I was younger who taught me well technically. Um, but yeah, I can't remember. As I say, there's a bit of an age gap. So maybe we did a bit. But since since then, we, we have. Um, he's He's out in Thailand now and... I've been over there a few times. So he, he's got me ready for some of the the veteran world champs that I've played. But definitely that support was massive. And and one of the things that jumps out to me as well, not, not just with you, Lucy, but in, in all these conversations that I'm having. And, and I want to ask you, because you have this experience as a player, a coach, a coach of coaches, a commentator. You know, there's a there's a big tennis background there. How important is the junior career? And, and I guess I've got two bits of that, and I'm going to ask the first one first. Are there any stages that can be missed? You know, so we're talking about starting at six, seven, you know, all the way through. You know, how important is it for them to, to do every single stage and have success at every single stage? Well, I think... Look, every every person's journey is different and it's unique. And I think if you know if we took twenty different players, there there would be slightly different routes. And I think that's what's unique about tennis is that you can come through at any stage. And you know, one thing for me, juniors is simply about gaining experience to be a pro player. And you know, if you're a late developer mentally or physically, then you know, it takes time. And if it doesn't happen as a junior, then for me, it doesn't matter. You know, the goal is if you can play some of the Grand Slams and those top junior events, then that is going to probably help you as a pro when, when and if that happens. So I very much view it that way. Now, you know, to be a top junior, you've got to have funding because it, it costs a certain amount of money to to actually go out and play the junior events to be able to get your ranking inside the top what 55 60 in the world to get into the main draw of the slams so if you're able to do that brilliant you can get out there and you can have experience playing abroad playing different people and picking up 
everything that you're going to then be doing as a pro. If financially you don't, then there's no point putting your, you and your family under a whole heap of stress. Then it's more about actually you just got to get the matches somehow as long as the development, because you've got to get the balance as a junior that you're thinking for me about being a pro player, obviously now there's different routes to go. So the development work is vital. So it is down to that individual. And I think, you know, mental and the physical side is important. And that's where coaches need to have some sort of understanding of what's happening at the top end of the game. And, and then the player that you're working with, what they're gonna need when they get through as a, as a pro player, if if they get to that stage. So I guess to answer the question, it, it, there isn't one route. And yeah. as I say, the experience you can get as a junior, it helps, but it's not the be all and end all. You know, people yeah. come through at different times. And I think sometimes we maybe panic parents and players to, to say, look, this has to happen at this time. Otherwise you're not going to make it. And that, that's something that I, I don't, necessarily agree with what about if i strip it back even further though <clears throat> and talk about age six to ten so is there an age that if you start it's too late to then become uh, a professional player as an example is there if you've got a player who never competes until a certain age you know is there some is there a bit that it, it within our sport that you think can't be missed. It just can't be, you know, if you're, if you're going to give yourself a chance, even we're talking about um, getting to the stage where you might be playing junior grand slams, which is, a, is an incredible level already. It just for those that are, those that are setting about on this journey. And then my second bit on that is, is there a part of it that's overemphasized, you know, that actually we're led to believe this is so important, but actually, but actually it's not. Well, I think one thing, if a player stops playing, then their chances of being a pro player or, or taking that journey aren't going to happen. So if there's that much pressure put on them when they're young, then for me, you know, that is a real shame. Now, obviously, I think they've got to have picked up a racket under 10. I think they've got to, to have started the sport. I mean, if I was going to do it with a, a young player and I had a total blank canvas, then I'd definitely be making sure that they were playing a lot of different sports because they all interlink. So, you, you know, I'd put them into gymnastics. So you're getting that flexibility and their understanding of how to coordinate the body so I would look at different sports and think right how can that help their development yeah. and you I, I wouldn't necessarily want them on court too often you know certainly don't wouldn't want to burn them out but there would be a vision of the different skills that they need to develop so I'd always recommend that if they want to play other sports I think team sports are brilliant because they're around other people but you're also then you know you you have to have a, a vision in in team sports and I think it teaches you much more tactically than perhaps when they're younger on a tennis court um so I think definitely understand under 10, they need to have picked up a racket and start to obviously having a, an interest in, in tennis. I think it's important to compete, I, I think definitely, but I, I think it's not about just the winning and losing. It's about their them understanding how to, 
to play the game, start to think about the tactics of it and and the enjoyment's vital. And, you know, we often talk about enjoyment and sometimes, you know, people, it's almost then that it needs to be like a kid's party. I mean, you can still enjoy a sport, but still be teaching them without them necessarily knowing. So I think creative coaches for under 10s is, is massive thinking yeah. about the key fundamentals um <laughs> the number of matches i think again is is balanced out it depends what other sports they're doing i think obviously you've maybe got to start specializing more when they're coming into their their teens because yeah. you know you we've got to stay on track with the rest of the world but I think, again, you've very much got to look at the individual and their setup and their family life and, and make the adjustments as needed. I honestly don't think there's one set blueprint for it. Yeah. No, and, and I think what you're saying there about other sports is massive. Um, enjoyment, and again, I'm with you on this, enjoyment it's not a McDonald's party running around with balloons. I mean, that can be kind of fun as well, I guess. But, um, you know, it, it, it just not building up scar tissue that will have a consequence later in life. And, and I think that's something that certainly Rajiv Ram was was on last week on, on the show. And, and he is 37 years old, number four in the world, won his first Grand Slam age 35 at his highest ever singles ranking at 32. And when you hear his story, very similar, similar to yours, Lucy, just a very supportive childhood, you know, playing a sport that he enjoyed, you know, not necessarily doing it just to be a professional tennis player, but doing it for the right reasons. You get those bit right. And, and, and who knows if it's meant to be that that's the journey you're going to go on. But then people like yourself and Rajiv then stay in the sport because there's a positive connection with the sport. There's, you know, rather than having having that negative towards it, you know, even take on Andre Agassi. I know he's doing stuff with charity now. He tried to coach, I think, Djokovic for like a week, you know, but we haven't really seen Agassi heavily involved in the sport. But if you look at his childhood and probably the scar tissue that was built up amongst it uh, and around it with the way that his parents was, the, the impact the impact is massive. Um, and that's a massive topic in itself. But you now as a player, because um, somewhat understated when you talked about your career, but you were British number one. Um, you were undefeated at Fed Cup, I believe. <laughs> true not that I played loads but I was undefeated uh, you know an undefeated fed cup player which is which is incredible do you view your tennis playing career as a success no I I, I think if I'm honest I, I would say no when I sort of sit back and reflect and go through it and what the doors that it's opened then definitely it, it has to have been but I think I struggle to to say that I really achieved as a player, um, which I, I think is a bit disappointing. I, I think I definitely lacked confidence and, and belief when I played, which, you know, looking back, I don't tend to agree with regrets, but if, if I could turn the clock back, that would be something that I would want to, to have been much clearer about 
my identity on the court, what sort of player I was tactically. And I think that would have helped me have much more belief in myself. Um, so yeah, I, unfortunately, and I'm probably not alone. I, I think a, a lot maybe around my era would maybe say, say no as well. I think there's so much emphasis on, you know, being top hundred and achieving X, Y, and Z and, and, you know, not maybe looking at everyone as a, an individual and, and saying, well, okay, these are the things you have achieved. I think certainly in the UK, there's that feeling of, you know, A, go pro, or if you don't go pro, then you're rubbish and it's very black and white. And then if you have gone pro and you haven't maybe broken the top hundred, then you haven't necessarily been a very good player. I, I don't think we appreciate the, the people that have actually played professionally in in the UK, um, which I, I hope it would change because, you know, my goal as a coach is for me, I've, every player that I've worked with is still playing when they're an adult, regardless what their journey's been. Then I, I think I've been a successful coach. And I think it's it's important that we actually understand what the standards are. I think, you know, I mean, Hedman still <laughs> gets talked about as if he, he didn't have a great career because he apparently didn't win anything because yeah. he didn't win a slam. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a shame that, that I feel that way, but I, I do think I'm maybe not alone. But you're you're talking there about what the perception is of Brits of Brits, which I agree. I think it's it's maybe one of the reasons on reflection why I'm in Spain. I've, I've never thought it was, but I think maybe it is actually now. You know, when I when I think about it, and I think of my playing career, you know, I remember going to US college. And thinking I was a really bad tennis player. Like I, I genuinely did. And I was I was number six in the world in juniors and doubles mm-hmm. and like 60 in the world in singles. But I I really and I and I'll never forget it. I was there for a week. And I and there was like this, like it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And it was like, you're good. Because for the first time in years. I had people around me that were telling me, and now now some people will say the Americans, it's a bit OTT, and I, okay, I, I can get that. But there was so much, that, and then I just, I started to settle in. And, and I remember even when I started to then play pro after college, after six months, I had the same feeling. I felt I was rubbish again. And it was like, and and, and I actually traveled over to America uh, and and again, this is just this is almost reflections I'm having as this conversation's happening. But I went, I did four or five weeks, and won a few matches, trained, came back, and actually then went off to India and won a futures event off the back of that, you know. And it, and it was and and it wasn't that I was going to work on my forehand, on my backhand, on my, but I was almost going to get this little hit hit of belief and, and energy. So, so, so the, the, the thing that I find a bit sad in it is that that was, it was 18 years ago that you stopped playing. Yeah. You know, like that's a long, long time to be able to, and, and look, you absolutely are successful, you know, happy, healthy. You've done this in, in the sport as a player, you've gone on to that, you know, and, and, and I think it is a little bit sad. So how do we change it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's maybe the education, because certainly as you're speaking there and talking about the perception when you went over to the States, if I went to Europe, you go to France, you go to Germany. And, you know, when I was playing, you tell someone what your ranking is, you know, they they understand what that means and what that level is. And I don't think we we do in the UK as much. I mean, you know, whether it's because we have Wimbledon and we hadn't had a Wimbledon champion for so many years, whether then that perception goes around, but it definitely then filters down into the British players. And I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult one to solve. I mean, I, I still think it's it's there. I think I think it's definitely getting better. I think certainly the perception from the foreign players about British players is that they may be spoiled and you know not particularly tough. I think that is certainly changing because you know on paper we're seemingly having more success at, at the top end. I mean, obviously you know, we're aware of that. I mean, I would just love to see more depth in, in terms of um, the success, but more focus on actually, okay, let's see how many players we can get inside the top 250. We're getting, you know, players into into qualities of the slams rather than the focus on being top 100, top 50, top 10. I mean, that's going to happen. But, you know, you look at other nations, Italy, Spain, France, USA, there's big numbers around you know, that 250 mark. So yeah. then if that suddenly becomes your target, then more players are going to actually think, well, maybe I could do that. And maybe that's deemed that it is, it, you have done well if you've got to those sorts of rankings. So I think work still needs to be done on that because I think we lose a lot of players because they feel that way. And then the trouble is then, if players have felt that way, then they stop playing, then they go into coaching, then it's still circulating round. But it definitely needs to be better education about the standards and, and what the world standards are and what is actually is good, because I don't think we're alone. And I still think it's happening where, you know, players stop playing and they do think they've failed. Yeah, and I, and I think that on the education, a big one for me is also education of the realities yeah the realities of the challenges but also the realities of the positives <laughs> you know and so if i start with the challenges i i, I guess and it's a question I'll, I'd, I'd like to ask you in, in a minute you know the the reality of travel as an example the reality if you if you if you're not able to pick your passport up and have a toothbrush waiting in a bag and you're not willing to, to be washing your clothes on the, on the road and ready to leave at any moment and, and miss out on parties and miss out on family events and miss out on some, some form of normality with your mates. It's it, no matter how good you are, it's not going to be the sport for you, you know, in, in terms of, in terms of pushing that, pushing that forward. But I also think, we don't educate the realities of the success stories because I'm a massive believer and advocate of this, that it's almost impossible to fail if you give your very best every single day and you, you get the right opportunities and you're in the right environment. And I'm talking about a bigger picture than tennis here. 
uh, because tennis is that vehicle that takes us. And, you know, even us, us having a conversation here, I'm in Spain living the life. I love my life. It's, it's hard work running an academy, but it's taken me here. You're commentating on the biggest events in the world and, you know, got, got lots of different things and, and, and leading a good life, but we're, we're not educating those stories either. You know, we're, we're educating at the Emma Raducanu story and the Andy Murray story, you know, but are we educating the Lucy Arl story, the, you know, the Dan Keenan story? I, I don't think we are. And, and and I think there is there's quite a bit of work to be done in that because I think it's good for people to know what they're getting into, but also the, the potential successes that that happen outside of just hitting a tennis ball and having a ranking next to your name. 100% agree. I mean, I think, you know, you think, think about the skills that, that you have to learn when you're, play, you're a pro player and, you know, you've got to book your flights, you've got to book your hotels, you've got to do your entries. So there's so many different logistical skills that you learn. I think traveling on your own, those sorts of experiences, you know, most people don't get so I mean they're real bonuses and I think they develop you as a person and teach you different skills that you can then use in in other jobs and a, a lot of the time if someone's out there traveling the world and all you get from that and there's such a judgment on yeah but they only got to this ranking I mean if, if you get world ranked in it in in the worst, that's unbelievable. I mean, if, but if you're out playing futures or junior events, I mean, that's not the norm. And I think it's underestimated about how good that is and what people can get from it. And I think a lot of people walk away having felt like they've failed, having you know, felt that they haven't achieved because there's that perception and then they actually forget or miss what they have learned. And, you know, I, I'll often say to to parents, the kids in their class aren't doing what your son or daughter are doing. And, you know, if you want to go for it and you're prepared to work hard, then I always say, give it a go. I mean, the, who am I to say you are or aren't going to make it? And, and to be honest, what what is make it? I mean, that gets sort of branded around and I'm not really sure the definition of that. And certainly, you know, if you're applying for a job, often, what they'll do is they'll look at the back page and actually see what else someone's achieved or what they've done. And if someone's put, they've been a professional player or they've played junior ITFs or, or whatever, that person then knows, okay, they must be disciplined. They must be passionate. They must be focused. So many different things come with that. And I, and I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, all of that gets missed because we're obsessed with, well, have they made top hundred or have they, won a grand slam or have they done x y and z and you know it, it gets lost and then it just becomes comes negative negative and i think that's real shame yeah well ultimately and this has been a, again a big reflection of mine the last few years a ranking doesn't define us it's a it's a number it, who we are and the character that we are will will always define us you know and, and, and ultimately those people that go on and a happy in life and you know live live the life that they they want to live and have lots of great experiences and people around them will be the ones that have, have developed character and and that would just be it it does feel like quite strongly 
you know, you, you talked about it there earlier and, and John Hicks is amazing. He, and I don't know why I've just, just come to my head, but John Hicks episode 14, I think he was on the, on the podcast too, which is an amazing listen. You need to listen to John Hicks, but he didn't want to take you and probably wouldn't have much of a look at you when you were doing X, but then when you did Y all of a sudden, you know, and, and we see it all the time. And this is not just a British thing, but we, we see it all the time in the world of tennis, even as a coach, you know, if you're coaching the guy who or the girl who's in the semis or final, everyone kind of wants to say hello to you and how are things and, you know, the, the, it, and people trying to find you by that. And I think we just as coaches need to keep remembering. And I know you do this, Lucy, and I'm sure most of the coaches out there do, but it's, it, it's about the character. It's about those personal traits. It's about all of those bits that will ultimately, and I'm a big believer that by chucking yourself at this tennis thing, you know, this tennis journey, no matter what the number ends up being, if you do it in the right way, you do it in a humble way, you do it in a, in a way that you can look yourself in the mirror, you, you won't go too far wrong. And that's the bit I mean by, I, I almost don't feel you can fail because it's, you, you're going to pick up all of those, all of those little bits. Now I promised I was going to ask the question to you, and that rambling that I've just gone on isn't going to make me forget. Um, how were you with the demands of the tour? The losing, the traveling, were you able to tolerate it? Was it something that you really struggled with? You know, how did that fit in with the way that you are? Definite ups and downs. I'd, I'd be lying if, if I said they weren't. I, I mean, I honestly look back on it and, you know, the, the downs, like you say, they, they may be the the person I am and I've certainly learned from them I mean I got the deal you know you've got to travel I, I certainly enjoyed that I mean I met a lot of people and obviously traveling around the world I loved competing um back then we didn't maybe have the luxury of of having people with us all the time so that that was difficult you'd be out there on your own and you know, you haven't got anyone supporting you. That doesn't happen quite as much these days. But that's that was how it was. You know, financially, that that was the deal. So the, those those moments were tough. But again, that strengthened you up. But it, you know, what everything that was possible always motivated me. You know, the chance of being able to play the Grand Slams, the bigger events, um, winning titles being out on the road, you know, every different continent, you, you're going to so many different countries. So you, you're learning all the time. And I, I did really enjoy that. And as I say, you know, I had different goals with my ranking, um, certainly achieved some of them. Playing for my country was, was massive. And the Grand Slams and the bigger events, the last sort of few years, I've made the, the commitment that, right, that, that is what I want to do. And, you know, took a punt some weeks to try and sign in and, and play qualies because that was where it was at. And I really learned a lot in the last few years, just being around those top players. And it almost became a bit of a challenge to me to try and find out, okay, well, why are those players at the top end of the game? What am I missing? What am I not doing? And I, I did enjoy that. And that's really helped me as, as a coach. So, I mean, there, there were, you know, ups and downs as, as there are with life, but the ups 
were amazing and also what potentially was possible that was very motivating you got to 161 i believe in the world which is no mean feat at all so what what was the difference between that and this holy grail of being a being a top 100 player is that something that was in your control on reflection or is that that you feel that you maxed out with what you had I think, as I mentioned earlier, certainly that understanding of who I was, what my game was, and being really clear about that, I think that would have helped me. That would have then given me the confidence and the belief. I think that was something that probably not just me, but a lot of the other players around me lacked. I mean, there was often a few times I remember I won um, a challenger and it was something that the group that I grew up with and that were all around the similar sort of ranking hadn't yet done and then I think either the following week or two weeks later Julie Pullen then won one so I think that belief and and almost if we could have pushed each other to get over the line I think a few of us would have been able to get higher I think it's still vital that but certainly looking back and with my coaching uh, and learning that is so important to know who you are on the court, what what your game style is, what your identity is, and then really specifically practice in those areas rather than it being too general. That would have made yeah. a massive difference. Yeah. Hunt, hunting in packs. It seems that there's a lot of successful nations that seem to hunt in packs. And uh, a really small little story from today, that I sat and did a performance plan with a player today but when we were setting some goals, this player was saying, look, I want to go to Division One college and I want to do this and I want to do that. And through a ranking out, an ITF junior ranking of 250, really want to be 250 ITF. So I kind of, it was a bit, little bit random the way it was thrown out in the conversation. And they replied with, well, yeah, my, my dad's best mate, his son got to 256 ITF. <laughs> <laughs> so I really want to beat him, you know? And I said, well, what if he got to number 10? He said, but then I'd want to be top 10. You know, I said, well, surely why don't you want to be top 10 anyway? You know, no, no, no. I just want to be 250. And I think it's quite, it's our human nature that we do that, that we, we want to just be ahead of the pack that we're with, you know, and, and that ability. And this is, this is definitely a challenge for British tennis and seems from afar to be getting better, but, but that's what they do really well in Spain, you know, particularly on the male side. I don't think it's been done as well on the female side in Spain, but they do, they hunt in packs. You see them, they're at the tournaments. There's like 10 or 12 of them all from the same Academy and, you know, one of them's winning the tournament. Well, that means the next one's got to get to the final. And then, you know, it, it builds from there. I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating mentality, you know, the, the way that it is. And what I want to do now though, Lucy, I want to move you to life after, after tennis playing. I know you still played, are you still playing now with, 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 I'll not give your age away, but the, the older, the older events um, that, than it is. But you, you mentioned you had these goals when you, when you stopped playing. Um, I think you were a step ahead of most people because I think most people come out of tennis or they come out of sport and 
they don't quite know what they're going to do and they'll just end up messing around or, or, or making some errors at that point. And the one that I really want to pick up on is it, it's the only thing that you've mentioned that you do outside of tennis, which is, which is your, the Ironman competitions. I know you've done super duper ultra marathons. So tell us about that time of your life. So, as you say, when, when I stopped playing, it was the start of the year in 2003, I made the decision, look, I didn't want to be someone that was each week going, am I going to play? Am I going to? So I said, right, I'm going to make a decision at Wimbledon. And then if I continue playing, I'm going to at least play for another year. So at Wimbledon, um, I lost that match against Sugiyama and then it took me a, a few days and I hadn't really sat down and thought about what am I going to do after tennis? Because again, look, I'm playing it now. I need to 100% focus on it. And it wasn't something that panicked me about, oh, if I stop, what am I going to do? So when I decided that that was it, okay, I was going to stop, which was a few days after Wimbledon, I had done, I've been lucky to do a bit of five live commentary and that was something that I quite enjoyed. So I thought oh, that'd be quite good to, to maybe be able to do that if there's any opportunities. Certainly definitely wanted to go into coaching. I felt that you know, I'd learn a lot as a player and, and I was still passionate about to be able to help some other players maybe have a similar journey to me. And then the third thing, and I don't really know why, but I was like, oh, I want to do an Ironman. So that was something that I'd, set out to do and I was lucky enough to pick up some commentary and got offered a role from Dave Felgate with with the LTA to go into coaching so I ticked those two boxes I then did go and see a coach about doing an Ironman he gave me a training program I then started traveling quite a bit and with the Ironman it's obviously run bike and swim so on the road the bike and the swim's not easy to be able to do so I then put that on hold. I did a number of different marathons. I think I did about five Londons. And then I started getting obsessed with breaking my time. I was desperate to try and do a three hour 15. I think I did three marathons that were three hours 18. So then I looked into doing some ultra marathons, which is basically anything over a marathon. So I did a 24 hour race once. I did a few 80 milers. And then eventually I did get back to training for doing an Ironman and managed to, I completed, I did two. So I did one in Weymouth and then one in Vichy in, in France. And the goal was to then try and qualify for the world championships in my age group in Kona. However, I then started traveling quite a bit with uh, Laura and so I had to put that on hold. So whether I'll go back to that, I don't know. But it was it was something that something tells me you will. <laughs> it was something that I felt then actually looking back, I think it's really important that you've got something as a coach that you're able to do. I mean, even if I had to get up at I don't know, half four, five and get my training in, I was then ready for for the day with the players and I was traveling a lot with with players I was doing 35 40 weeks on the road so you're away a lot and as you know when you're away I mean it is pretty much 24 7 full on but just having that time where I'd done something for myself and I know a few other coaches do do that I think it's really important um otherwise 
it can be tough as soon as I got my training in then I was ready to go but it definitely it helped me mentally and in some ways you know I wish that I'd looked to do some of that endurance training or races when I was playing because you learn a lot about yourself and you actually realize how to get properly mentally tough when Mm. you're doing a 24-hour race and it's two in the morning <laughs> and you got to keep going so it, it, it all of them there was brilliant experience and I, I did did love doing all the different races that I did it seems as if that's being the story of your life though in in terms of how you've you've kept going you've kept pushing you've you know you've been resilient you've you know, take it, taken knocks and, and got back up from them. In in terms of in terms of coaching, what have been some of the knocks that you've had and how have you then been able to get up from them? So with coaching, I mean I've I love coaching. I love working with players. Um I love you know being able to be part of a player's journey, particularly they they've got ambitions, passions goals because I I honestly believe if if you want something you're prepared to put the work in then anything's possible and always back any player and and I put a lot into coaching I mean I've traveled a whole heap and that probably you know led to other sacrifices in in my life which again I don't regret I guess looking back maybe should have had a bit better of a, a work-life balance but I guess having been a pro player and knowing what you've got to put in that was definitely my approach as a coach maybe looking back probably at times pushed too much and put too much in and needed to maybe focus more on on developing a player's ability to be able to do that themselves that's something that I think I've learned as a coach and I've developed those skills because ultimately they've obviously got to be out there on on the court themselves and do it on their own I always found it difficult when you having played pro I'm very aware of what the standards are and then there's an element of if you take your your foot off with with the player then you know they're maybe going to run out of time but I think sometimes it's been a little more patient. It's tough when you stop with a player. I've had those situations where you've you've put a lot in. I mean, it's a full-on commitment, as you know. It's you know, it's twenty-four-seven, and you know, if there's a funeral or a wedding, and the player you're working with is in the semis or the final, then that's going to take priority. Which, to a lot of people that maybe aren't involved in that, would find pretty strange and I guess if I step back it is a bit weird but that's the commitment that you've you've got to give um as I say I've definitely learned a whole heap as a coach and developed I was probably a little too gung-ho at the start um now I do have a a different approach maybe a bit more of a softer approach um you know ultimately as a coach your job is to try and get inside the player's brain and see things the way they see it to then help speed up their their learning and their development rather than maybe trying to pull them along um, at your own speed. I think, yeah, I think that 
that development's been good. I've I've in, enjoyed that. I've enjoyed you know learning how to be a better coach. And maybe at the start, if I went back, I certainly would recommend and choose to have some sort of mentor that could actually look at me and my development. And I think that I probably would have become a, a more effective coach quicker. Is the expectation that is on tennis coaches, and, and, and I think I'm not even talking about professional tennis coaches. I'm, I think it's even if you're working with any players of, of, a, of a decent level, you know, national level, international level from, from a young age, it, it does hit me when we do step back, and I know it's hard for us to do in our industry to step back, but it does hit me that the expectation of being avail- available till midnight on our phones, the expectation of working at weekends, the expectation of not missing tennis matches, the expectation you know, of, of just getting in the car and driving off to a national camp and giving up other work and doing that for free. And, you know, there's, there's quite a, quite a heavy expectation, I think, on tennis coaches. Is that healthy? No, (laughs) no, it isn't. And as you say, if you do force yourself to step back, I mean, it was something I never questioned, like, this is the deal. I'm, I'm in hundred percent again, I guess, coming from a playing background, I knew that that was important. However, I think I think you're right. I think the, the trouble is where it can be difficult and where I think coaches can get hit and really demotivated, which I then don't think is good for British tennis, is that you then can become indispensable. You can become irrelevant. A player can move on at any time. Yeah. There's no guarantee. So, you know, when you've really put everything into it and then a parent or a player decides that they want to move on which is fair enough and it happens it is a massive blow and I think that does chip away so then you start I think maybe coaches as they get older they maybe start to possibly resent that or they step back and don't put as much in so I think it's important to try and find a better balance and I think generally as an industry they're there should be a better balance because the trouble is if some people might look at it with I don't do it then someone else is going to I mean that's something I never looked at as I say I made the decision to to go into coaching and it was quickly after stopping playing so for me that did seem normal but I guess now sometimes when I look back and reflect and you think sometimes where you may be here a player hasn't really appreciated what's been put in that could that it can be tough to take and then I know I'm probably not alone with that yeah it goes back well I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier if you if this this starts even earlier for some people doesn't it when they have pressure heaped on them from age of eight or nine and they get shouted at and they have a negative connection with the sport because of that but now we're going ahead here 20, 30 years, you know, as a, as a coach. And then you start that scar tissue just builds and builds and builds to, to the point where it can create very cynical, you know, very <laughs> bitter, bitter individuals uh, that, that's probably not great for the Tennessee ecosystem. 
But if I go back now to you aged 28, I believe when you stopped and you, you walked into a national job, it seemed, you know, I'm not saying you didn't deserve that, but, but I think the, the, this and please apologies to any listeners. I'm not just going down a, a stereotypical route of I have a female coach, so I have to go for the female the, the, the female coach questions. But but I but it does hit me at that point. There is a lack of female coaches around, you know, which hopefully is going to change and and is changing uh, with the help of of people like yourself, Lucy. Do you think you were able to get a role so easily because of your ability to travel, to travel with the girls because you were a female coach and there wasn't so many of them? And if you did, do you think that was a good thing for your progression as a coach rather than maybe going a little bit slower, learning your trade a little bit more before you went into a role like that? Good question. I think I think back then there definitely wasn't a focus on there's a lack of female coaches or the equality. I didn't feel any of that. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, Dave Felgate offered me the role. My understanding was more about me as a person. And yep. it's something that I wanted to do, definitely. And um, so Keith Aldridge was in charge and Dave was in charge of the LTA and then yeah. I was given some players to work with, um, Mel South being one of them, and then later on Katie O'Brien. So they were 16-year-olds and that, for me to take them through the journey to become pro players, it was a given that I would travel because I wanted to do it and to do that job you had to. So I never looked at it differently. Um, I was... I quickly was aware we were out in La Manga. It was a LTA training camp out there. And I was aware that if I was going to fit in, I to become one of the boys, which, I mean, I, I enjoyed male company anyway, so it wasn't an issue for me. But I knew just that I had to put myself in the mix with it, just even you know, with the banter or, you know, it was, I was the only female. So it was all, everyone, it was male coaches. And I just, there was, there was a moment where it was, you know, the guys were going to meet up or they were staying in the same apartment. So there was that connection straight away. So, so I knew I needed to, to step in and, and be part of that group, which as I say, wasn't an issue, but I guess some Females might have struggled with that. I mean, you know, my personality, yeah. I'll sort of chuck myself in. Um, and then I, I didn't, honestly, I never, I mean, most of the tournaments I, I was at, there wasn't really any other female coaches. That was just the norm. Um, I was aware that I had to work hard maybe to gain respect. And then I had to stay there to, keep it I didn't feel that I could step off I needed to continue to you know work hard and travel and and as I say I, I enjoyed it but it was definitely I, I knew I had to to keep up um and I think I think I did gain respect I hope hope I did 
there was definitely that feeling and um I suppose it's been, only been the last few years which in some ways I haven't really liked where there's been more focus on equality and there's oh. not enough female coaches not enough females in different roles and and then there's that fine line where you know you don't want to be that female that's moaning and I understand from a male's perspective then it can become quite awkward what they can or can't do and you know I think the worst thing for society is actually then putting in token females because I don't think that helps yep. anything at the end of the day you've got to have the right person for the job yes there's got to be maybe more doors opened and more opportunities but you've got to then be upskilling people so the, the the standards are there because it's not going to help anyone to you know have a, a female that's in a role that they're they're not capable of it's not going to help them and, it, and it's not then going to help the perception um so as I say for I mean I've been coaching for a long time now more than I play yeah. and for for many years I'd, I'd never viewed it as this isn't fair or you know it's like we I've got to get stuck in and work hard here and actually yeah. you know learn more skills and and develop myself um but it, I mean it's something that you're certainly doing the coach ed and the female mentoring there's definite lack of confidence and belief and you can then get some groups that are then you know moaning about the fact we don't get this don't get that and I said well you know it's then our job to actually develop ourselves and put ourselves in the mix from you know you've, you've got to work in different areas you don't just want to be handed a job and no one's going to knock on your door so it's definitely the responsibility of the individual and I mean, hopefully, I mean, there, there are becoming more opportunities. I think Nick Wheel's done a really good job with the female mentoring scheme that I'm involved with and we're trying to encourage and develop more female coaches. But it's, yeah, it, I mean, it is, a, it is a talking point. I understand that. And yeah. it's just trying to build the confidence. But yeah. also actually, you know, if you're looking at a team, you want to go if you've got five people in the team okay who's good at which area and definitely you know there are without blanketing everything you know men are better in certain areas generally you know not everyone and females in other areas but if yeah. you get that mix then for me you've got the the strongest team a great answer and i think with that i guess the the, the goal the goal has to be to get to the point where we're not talking about equality <laughs> that's that's yeah. the, that's the you know and I guess ironically that was happening but probably in all honesty I think because of your character and I and I remember being I actually remember being on court always next to you at Queens because I was playing when you were coaching Mel and and I always remember I love I love Lucy's energy you know I love you know like I I remember thinking yeah. these these girls better run after that ball because they're getting absolutely you know like get out come on you got it and, and it, that real that real energy with it and I think it's yeah it's kind of ironic that that's how it was but I I I think people that don't have the character that you have would have probably found it even tougher back then because it was it was and we're not even talking about years and years ago but 
you were kind of expected to talk about football and burps and you know you know we're we're all very you know masculine and that's what we and, and that's what we do you know so so to get to that point where it is just the best person is in the best job and I get asked I get asked this this quite a lot because we we don't have a female tennis coach at sort of tennis academy and haven't had a full-time female tennis coach for the 12 years we've had a significant number of female strength and conditioning coaches and I get asked the question why don't you have a female coach and it's just very simple we haven't had the right candidate <laughs> you know there's been very very few female coaches that, are, that have applied if you're considering a move to Spain Lucy that that might change but it it, it just hasn't we, we have had very few that have applied and we will take the best candidate for the role that's needed you know, though that might be in five years' time, I might have six, <laughs> because they at, the, at, the, at that moment we might have the right the right six people. So I think that has to be the goal. Have you ever felt you've missed out on an opportunity because of that? I don't think so. I mean, not because I'm I'm a female, not a male. I mean, the only again. I don't like the word regret. I think I've talked about, I would have definitely loved to have had a mentor and develop myself from the start as a coach. Oh. And the other thing, there's no pathway at all in coaching in the UK. I think that's something that's really lacking. And I think, I think we could maybe do a better job with that. I think it's certainly something that I hope to see more in the future. The two things I would have loved to achieved as a coach, um, and I maybe didn't go down the right route myself. Maybe I'm not qualified, but I maybe didn't go down the right route in terms of trying to have a career pathway. Whereas some people have maybe taken that route is Maureen Connolly. I'd love to captain that. I was under 16 yeah. age group captain, which is junior fed cup obviously now Billie Jean King cup so I did that I love being involved in the team events it's something I really enjoyed so I did that for a few years so your winter summer summer cup Europeans and then the junior fed cup and then Maureen Connolly which um was under 21 then under 18 to then try and develop to be part of the fed cup whether that's as in whatever role I'd have loved to have, have done that and I think maybe I'd have had to have walked a different route or taken a different path to, to try and enable that to happen I don't think there's a clear pathway with it um, as I say maybe I'm not qualified or maybe I'm, but I didn't feel I don't feel there's ever been that opportunity and they were maybe two things that I would would hope yeah that I would have achieved um but in terms of not getting something no I don't I don't, I don't think so again as I say it really has only come on my radar over the last yep. number of years it was something I never thought about if if there was something I wanted to do then I would would go out and try and do it and you know different roles that that as I said I always search if if I wanted a new challenge then I would go out and try and find it which I think is important and yeah most of the time I was lucky enough to get that opportunity what about Davis Cup yeah that's a good question 
I mean, again, I think that's so far away from a female being involved in that. We haven't even got a female coach on the men's side. So, yeah, that would be something that I'd, I'd love to see is actually, I mean, I really enjoy working at JTC. Yeah. I work with men and women and I've, I really enjoy, it's so different working with guys. I mean, it's much more about the tennis and the tactical side and it's a, it's a totally different way of coaching a different style of coaching I think I think it's great if you get the opportunity to do both I've been lucky enough to do that and really yeah as I, as I say the teams that I've worked with I've I know a lot of female coaches have struggled being in an, in an all-male team I've been lucky that I, I do feel I've been respected by both the male coaches and and the male players I probably shouldn't be having to say that <laughs> it should be the norm but I don't I don't think it is I mean just because it's I mean, it's not visible is it so that's often you know if you can see it then you can be it and we Absolutely. hardly see any female coaches on the WTA tour there's a there's a few you know not yeah. many at all and certainly on the, the men's tour there isn't um, there's been a few obviously that have been involved Moresma obviously been uh, an obvious one but it's you know it's something that I'd love to see in the future because I think it's important I think it's Absolutely. really important for you know the, the boys and the guys to have females around this different perspective the trouble is because it's not happening then you don't necessarily have the experienced coaches there's, there's not too many that have done the amount of travel that I've done over the years and and work with the different players that I've had I've you know I've committed to that and other females maybe haven't been able to obviously starting families and that side and you know got to take that into account you know if you want to be a, a coach that's on the tour you, you do have to travel a yeah. certain amount and we can't forget as well that on the WTA tour the the coaching model is generally a, a younger guy that's a hitter and then you've maybe you you've got a more experienced coach now as you go further down the top players can obviously afford that but as you go further down something's got to give and generally it's that more experienced coach so we do see a lot of younger player ex-players that have maybe not achieved the massive ranking but they can hit a decent ball and and that seems to be the model so that also kind of it both ways you're wanting equality but then some of the female players actually the whole of your team are men so we've almost you've got to look at a bigger picture with it if we want to do make some changes yeah it's a it's a massive subject and like you said it doesn't have to be or it shouldn't be but in terms of the the bit that I I, I am fascinated by because I think we, we end up speaking a lot to male coaches about the differences between coaching a male player or a female player, you know, and I think, you know, for, so for you who has spent the last few years, yes, you've, you've, you've worked with a lot of female players, but you have also spent a lot of time with male players. Is there differences? Well, the key difference, I mean, it, for me, it's, it is probably easier coaching a male it's less complicated and and you are you're more focused on the game the tactical side 
whereas there is it's a lot more emotional on the women's side there's a, a lot more ups and downs in that regard I mean we see it I mean you watch you know female tennis and there's a lot more momentum shifts just given that there's overall there's there's more breaks of serves but you know you can see the emotions that that are going on and and that happens on and off the court and on the practice court so that's a big difference and I enjoy working with both but I, I have found the different guys that I've worked with it you can be more direct and you are talking more about tennis which is something that I then try and help develop in in the females particularly the younger ones where you're trying to get them more interested in actually following the game because that isn't something that naturally happens when they're younger whereas the guys do they they follow the sport and they know the players and they're watching it all the time I mean sometimes it can be a bit of a nightmare when they're coming and they've changed their forehand overnight because they've watched someone but they're they're into into the sport and Whereas the females, it, it's not so much that takes time and that, you know, as I say, as we've said, that's not everyone, but um, you have to you have to take that into account. You have to develop them differently and have a, a different pathway. But I do actually think I think it really helps to travel with girls and boys when they're juniors and have them mixing together and being on the road to, you know, if you're a coach you've got two girls, two boys. I think that's the perfect mix. That's what we started with at JTC. And then you, you're almost toughening up the girls, but with the guys, then you, you're giving them, you know, the softer side, more discipline and having better focus. So you've got a great combination then, but it is different. Definitely. I found that from my experience and you, you have to adapt and you have different styles. Um, but as I say, if if you could travel more as a group, I know you can. I mean, you can do it at the futures, obviously, which yeah. we've done. I think that's the best combination. Yeah, and uh, there's obviously British tennis has has flown into the uh, into the global news over the last the last couple of months with well Cameron Norrie in in Indian Wells, and and I thought it was really nice actually when Cam came out and said. You know how inspired he was by by Emma's success in New York. You've you've been around a lot of those girls. If we talk about the, the Jodie Burridge, Katie Swan, Emma Raducanu, Fran Jones, you know that that crop that that has come through. Would you have picked Emma as the one that would have been the first? Hopefully, the other girls will follow. But would you have picked Emma to be the one that that has gone on and had? had such amazing success at such a young age? I mean, she, I probably stopped that role when she was coming through. So um, I met her a few times, didn't didn't know her too well. The last, I don't know, six, well, six months before Wimbledon, when I was working with Marnie Banks, um, spent some time on court with her when she was with Nigel and and Marnie had played her a few times at, at the British Tours as well. So um, I'd seen her play and then it hit me actually spending about a week on, on court with her and just her mindset was different, how she viewed things, how she went about her practice, the questions she 
asked whether it was Nigel and the feedback she wanted. Um, they asked any feedback from me whether they took it on board or not, but she was engaged in that and wanting to, to learn and just her talking about the game. I think Nigel had said that through the lockdown that she wanted to do some analysis on the top players, I don't know, Svitolina and those players. So her yeah. vision of that is where I'm going and there's no question mark about it. And the fact that she, listening to her interviews, the fact that you know she referenced Lina and the final that she watched her play at Roland Garros, that's different for me that that isn't the norm. She's, you know, got that vision that that is where I'm going to be. Um, yeah. I remember watching her just in warming up at the British tour and the way that she was just practicing in the, like the four minute knock up, just practicing, you know, changing the rhythm and the variety. And that was something that when I'd seen her play before, she didn't really have. So she was prepared to, to look to use that just to see in the knockout and then in the match. So the, just a much broader vision um, yep. that definitely stood out and hit me. I certainly didn't predict that she was going to go on and win the US no. Open. But it, yeah, she just seems to be a different type of person. Um, I mean, just phenomenal. It's still unbelievable what, what she's achieved. Oh, unbelievable. And I mean, her level is just, just incredible i mean you know how she played at the us open and at wimbledon as well i mean that stood out with Very how good. she dealt with the occasions and how she you know constructed the points how she stayed in the points and some of the tennis that she played it or it seemed normal for her which is strange because she hadn't been there before and i think when you when you get that that's very difficult to teach yeah. And that really did stand out um, as something very special. And we've talked a, a lot this evening on people following and, you know, uh, people being around that level and maybe going to the level of the people around them. So what what is this going to do to that next crop? So obviously, you know, Jodie very well, Katie Swan, Fran Jones, is that going to inspire them? Are we going to see them following towards the top of the game? Is it going to have a negative effect? Well, that's not me. You know, how, how, how do you see that unfolding? There's trouble that we've, we have had, I think, in the past, a little bit with Tim. I mean, obviously, there's Greg as well. They almost went too far, and then it was yeah. difficult for people to, to hold on. I think the fact that you've had still have Andy and then what Evo's done and what Cam's done. You know, Liam's definitely got on the back of that, not forgetting Kyle as well. So as we spoke about earlier, there's a, there's a group of them and there's a, then a connection. That's yeah. really important. So it's trying to somehow keep, keep it all connected. And yeah. you know, hopefully, you know, Harriet has been, been doing well. Hopefully, you know, Heather can keep, pushing her ranking out I think you know she's still got a lot of potential and you know if she can get going I, I can see her moving up obviously Joe, I think maybe she went a bit quick as well suddenly was up there 
but that's where I think you've then got to have groups in yeah. in each of the brackets so it is then joined up so they're not then going alone I mean I think and obviously Heather and and Laura and behind them you know Bally and Anne and then we had Katie and Mel I mean all of them broke into the top 100 and then Katie and Mel didn't maybe push on obviously Laura with the different injuries so it's been fragmented and you there are quite a there's quite a big group with you know Bolts and Katie Swan who's obviously struggled with the injuries you know Jodie's got potential there talked about Harriet um so hopefully that group can maybe cling on and Heather in, in there um that's what you need because if if yeah. one goes then it, it seems too far away to cling on to but that's why I think you need to build a foundation and actually start lower down and have the focus on right let's see how many we can get inside yeah. the top 250 and that's the goal because yeah. that's then achievable for someone who's 500 but if you're talking about top 100 or top 50 or now we're talking about a grand slam champ then that becomes too far away so it's a really good point and if emma's listening because i'm sure she listens to all the podcasts <laughs> um just if you could just not win the us open next year and do we just need to pull your ranking down a little bit? I know, <laughs> and, I know you're not saying that. I know you're not but saying I, that. But, but I don't want... But I, the point is right. I don't want her to feel that it's her responsibility. It's now up to the rest of us to really put in a good foundation behind her. Um, yeah. She's done her job and more. And we, we need to properly build on it. And that does... It needs starting from... From the bottom with it as well and i know you were as as a commentator and you know as you can hear from from this episode you know lucy's speaks incredibly well about the sport and i'm sure you've heard her voice in on many matches and, and i know you were commentating on emma's match against christia at, at wimbledon which was was, was such a uh, an emotional unbelievable event the event that happened how how's that for you when you're in that the, the commentary booth there as as those matches and those things are unfolding I love it I mean I'm really lucky to get get the opportunity to commentate TV and radio and it, I mean it was it was amazing I mean it's still the level that she produced and I mean then went even better at, at the US Open and and how she dealt with it and obviously being a Brit and being so passionate about the sport. I mean, that for me, you know, what she's done is, is reached out to kids that are out there. I mean, I think, I mean, I did a, with Danny Sapswood, I did his 24 hour charity marathon and it was all kids that came in and was playing doubles with one of them and said, oh, who's your favorite player? And it, it was a boy. 12 and he said Emma Raducanu and that's the first time that I've actually heard a boy pick a girl and yeah. um, female player so you then think about what can then happen on the back of that but also you know having spent a little bit of time with with her and then seeing what she's been able to achieve and it's just yeah, it's just it's just brilliant. I mean, as as with the guys as well, you know, being able to to commentate on it is is amazing. But just being able to watch it is 
is, has been fantastic as well. And your standout match that you can remember commentating on? You remember Murray, the Vavrenka first match under the roof? Yes. At Wimbledon. So I, I did that. The atmosphere was ridiculous. Man. And that, obviously, having been, you know, under the roof, and, the, and being Murray as well, but it was a, an amazing match. I just remember, you know, being able to have that opportunity on radio as well, where, you know, there's a lot of energy with the radio. And that was really exciting. And what about you, your favourite ever memory as a tennis coach? As a coach, um, there's been quite a few, really. I think... Mel, when she beat Schiavone at Wimbledon, that was a massive, massive win. And that was a, like a, a huge match for her. And was she French Open champion at that point? Well. Yeah. And she was working with Martina Navratilova. Oh, wow. Luckily, because Martina was trying to get her to serve volley, which <laughs> probably wasn't the right tactic. But yeah, the way Mel, Mel played and, and handled that occasion... That was a pretty special moment that was see earlier on in, in my career. Um, I worked for her for, with her for quite a few years. I think Laura as well, and she beat Venus in in Rome. And then next match had to play Serena, being able to be that close to to her playing those types of players was, was pretty special as well. But then with the younger ones, I stepped down and actually worked took some time to develop my skills and, and work with some mini players. And we had a um, Flybe sponsorship with some under 10s and took them up to watch the Davis Cup in Glasgow, which had four little ones watching the evening session. And that was pretty amazing to give them that experience, which they're, they're massive, you know, giving kids different experiences that they're going to be talking about when they're when they're older I think is so important so it's been a mix it's been a mix for me um yeah I've done quite a few different things as a coach which I think I think's helped I was part of the the team to take the British deaf team out to the deaf Olympics in Taipei Amazing. that certainly developed my skills I'm yeah shouting isn't going to be very effective <laughs> no. so I had to learn a different style so yeah I've been really lucky to to work with different people of different levels and I would definitely recommend that to, to coaches to to try and get as much so, different experience as possible and then the last thing this year I guess and I, and I can't have you on without asking you about this is coaching coaches you know it's one thing to to coach a 10-year-old, it's another to coach Laura Robson playing against Serena Williams. But but then you've got a bunch of coaches in front of you. Now, how how's that experience been? You know, what's what are the what are the challenges and the and, and the opportunity doing that? That side I've I've loved. I um as I say, when I left working for the LTA and moved back down to, to Devon and then I decided that I wanted to get involved with the coach education so trained up and I've tutored on every different level from the level ones right the way through and now I'm in, involved with the, the SBC, the level four with the, the LTA and I just, 
a love getting to know the coaches out in the field and I think it's really important to to be close to that to actually understand what's going on because if we don't have good effective coaches motivated coaches then we're going to struggle to produce players in British tennis and I think then you know it, it can help the experiences that I, I've had I think it's important that that's being fed back in and I, I have seen over the last few years how it's maybe helped develop the confidence of some of the female coaches as well actually seeing me involved in that side but it's that that connection I'm not probably massive in terms of standing up there and presenting all of the content but I actually like that connection yeah. you know in the smaller groups one-on-one -on -one and and trying to help them actually find a pathway and you know whether there's an issue with a certain player that maybe I've experienced or I've got a connection with someone else just trying to help make things possible for them and that I have I've, I've loved doing so hopefully I continue to get the opportunity because I do think it makes a difference and I think you know it'd be great to have other people that have had my sort of experience being able to feed back as well as I think it's really important that that we're getting getting that experience back into the field so that's been a big thing for me well, well done on on it all you know <laughs> you're a busy you're a busy girl that's you know you're, you're here there and everywhere and and, and the, the one thing that hits me Lucy as well is you're coming across lots of different platforms to be able to impact people within within this sport and I think you, you have a very inspirational story you know you've You've been there. You've done it. You know, you as you said at the at the very beginning of, of our chat, it, it wasn't like you just picked up a racket and could just hit winners left, right, and center. You you've had to you had to find ways. You know, and I think that determination comes through loud and clear. You know, and I think for your messages to be able to get out there and hopefully on this platform and this episode getting this out far and wide as well, because I know there'll be a lot of people inspired by by your story and anyone that comes comes across you. So so well done on all of those amazing things. And and what's next? Good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I do feel I maybe need a few more challenges on the horizon. I've definitely got a better balance with work and life now, um, which is, I think it's important. I think that yeah, I haven't, certainly haven't lost any any passion for for what what I'm doing. I still enjoy getting on court and working with the players, and similarly getting on the road. I think that's where a lot of your works works done. So continue with that side, continue with the coach ed and the commentating, hopefully. And as I say, I'm always one that's maybe looking for for different opportunities to to try. So yeah, I'm not sure. Think I think maybe possibly looking for a few different things over the next couple of years, but still I'll keep you posted. Watch watch this space. <laughs> watch this space. Well, we we can't have you on Lucy without the famous quick fire round. So are you are, are you ready? I'm ready. I'll I'll be quick. Player or coach? Player. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Doubles or singles? Singles. Your favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. 
who will be the world number one at the end of 2025 in the men's game? Corder. And women's? Radicani. Oh, you had, you had to go and put the pressure on her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> uh, let or no let? No let. Medical time out or not? Not. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? No warm-up at the start of a match. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? I'm not sure she'd do it, but I'd love to hear from Laura Robson. Do you know what? We have asked her. But the, <laughs> well, the delivery of of the question was Lloyd Glasspool, and I'm not sure I'm not sure Lloyd would have asked with the most enthusiasm or or <laughs> or pitched it at a, in a place that she would do it. So uh, you are you are our person to pitch that question. I think a lot better than Lloyd. So when she's asked by someone like yourself and she says no, then maybe we hold our hands up. Um, but the question's being asked. And we'd love to ask that question again. So uh, any help on that would be appreciated. Uh, yeah, I'll ask her. Lucy, thank you. And, and good luck with it all. Uh, you've, I guess you've got a busy rest of the week ahead. In Are you in Paris? Or are you... No, I'm, I'm sat in a hotel looking at the Heathrow runway. <laughs> Glamorous. So what? What? what we're at Stockley Park. So, um, okay. well, Amazon are there and um, ATP. So I'm doing ATP TV this week for Paris. Okay. And it's all done in Stockley Park, which is about ten minutes from Heathrow. All of I thought you might be at Heathrow, ready to fly out to Paris. So no. it's not, <laughs> not not quite the clever life. Not yet. Hopefully soon it'll it'll get back to to being on site. Well, great. Well, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. I've loved it. And as always, a big thank you to you all for listening. Thank you for sharing these podcasts far and wide. And thank you for all of the likes, the, the reviews, the sharing on social media that all of you are doing. And also thank you for reaching out. There's, there's people around the world now that are very much listening to these episodes on a weekly basis. And it's opened up many amazing contacts I've got some good new friends now in Australia who are listening to the episodes each week. Got new friends everywhere around the world. And if it wasn't for you guys sharing them far and wide, then they wouldn't be getting into the right hands. So a big thank you to you all. It's a little bit strange for me today. I'm actually sat in my bedroom after a long day in Alicante in Spain at a junior ITF tournament. It feels a bit strange not to be unpacking this episode with Vicky. So I do apologise that you've, you're stuck with me today. And I promise I'll keep it a little bit shorter because of that. But what an inspiration Lucy All is, you know, listening to her story. And this is one of the big things I love about bringing these episodes to you and these stories to you is not every player is the best in their age group. Not every player has this amazing talent that tennis comes easy to them. And looking at Lucy and the way that she went through her career 
to then find her way all the way through to being British number one, to find herself. We mentioned at the start of the podcast about never losing a match at Fed Cup. I can tell you her record is three matches, three wins. So it wasn't one match, but some of you might have thought as we had a joke about that. But to play three matches and to win all three matches, you know, to, to have that at the pinnacle of her career. And something tells me that Lucy and her determination will continue to do many great things, whether it's in the sport or out of the sport. You know, the mindset that she has, the challenges that, that she likes to set herself. And, and the, there's a big, big learning from all of us in, in the way that her mind works and the way that she is attacking this life. She's a brilliant commentator. And if you get a chance to listen to Lucy as you're watching the tennis over, over the next couple of weeks, the WTA and ATP finals, and then as we go back into 2022, starting in Australia, you know, she's one of the best commentators out there. And I have to say a big thank you to Lucy in a busy schedule to come and share that inspirational story with us. I'm looking forward to seeing what the next challenge is. You know, she seemed very clear that there was another challenge ahead. So watch this space for Lucy all for everybody else. As I said at the start, thank you for listening. You guys are awesome. Really appreciate everything and everyone that's associated with this podcast we love bringing these pods to you and we will be back next week as always with our fantastic guests. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>